We would sing angels we have heard on high. We were preparing for Christmas every year. And I just remember her yelling at us when we got to the Gloria part in excelsis. And she would go, eggshells, eggshells. And I was like, what? It's Gloria in excelsis Deo. Oh, okay. So now I have a wonderful Christmas carol that I can't think of or sing without thinking about eggshells. But it's a beautiful expression of the time of year that we have. And I appreciate Miss Harvey. She was, uh, she was a wonderful lady who taught us to love music because she loved it so much. And you know, I've seen that in people. The greatest teachers are the ones who love what they teach or love what they do because you can't help but catch the spirit that comes from them when they're trying to teach you something that they're so enthusiastic about. Well, our scripture today is going to be various and different places in the Bible. So if you want to just hang on to your Bible, we'll be turning to different places as we consider different symbols that we see that point to Christmas, particularly symbols from a nativity scene. You know, our culture loves its symbols, right? I mean, we, we see them everywhere. We see, used to be the big symbol was the Izod symbol. When you saw that, you know exactly what that was. Now it's the swoosh from Nike. If you see that, you know what that is. I always called it a check until somebody told me it was a swoosh. So had to be brought up to date on that a little bit. But the symbols that we have in our culture speak to us and give us messages even before we know what they're attached to. Is it, we got a problem with it? Oh, look at all the signs that are being held up out there. Wow! And I hadn't even seen, hang on just a minute. We're having technical difficulties this morning. Is it not on? Is that the problem? See, I thought it was always on, so that's why I didn't. Ah! It's got a little red light and it turns green. How Christmas! That's just cool. Okay. I'm going to put my sunglasses right there if it won't bother anybody else. I think that's what happened. I stuck them in there, and it turned the microphone off. All right. So anyway, when we talk about, we talk about our symbols in our society and what they mean to us. Actually, logos today would have been symbols to the ancients. But when you're driving down the interstate and you see these big golden arches sticking up above the trees, you don't have to wonder what's at that exit. There's a Waffle House, and then there's a McDonald's. There's always a Waffle House. It doesn't matter which way you're going. But McDonald's, when you see the, the, the golden arches, we know that that's what they're, what's there. I'm, I'm fascinated by the signs, too, that we see on the roadway, the yellow signs that kind of give us information, like it'll show a car that's got skid marks coming out the back. And I'm always wondering what I'm supposed to do there. You know, does that mean I really get on the gas, you know, see what I can do? Or, or the deer crossing signs. I mean, how do the deer read those and know that that's where they're supposed to come across the road? I've just always wondered. But you see those, seriously, we see those and we know what they mean. We see a person walking toward a road. We know that means something. It's a symbol, but it speaks. It speaks to us that it's a pedestrian crossing. They communicate to us. And, you know, God uses symbols to communicate to us. Think about Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. You know, the book of Revelation is full of symbols. And sometimes they're scary. 
But if we look in the Bible, we'll find the meaning of the symbols. Sometimes Jesus explains them right away. Sometimes we look through the Scripture and we discern what those symbols mean from the rest of the witness of the Word. But think about this passage, Revelation 1.20. This is Jesus telling us what the symbols in the beginning of the book of Revelation mean. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches so there you go God's pretty specific he wants us to understand the symbols that he uses and then of course you know we see the symbol of the Christian life which is a cross some of you may have that may have a cross around your neck I actually have something a little unique you can't see it but it's a star of David and it has a cross in the center and I bought that in a little shop in Jerusalem when we went to the Holy Land several years ago. And it, it has great meaning for me because it reminds me that I was grafted into the vine. That Jesus came, Jesus' death on the cross makes us sons and daughters of Abraham as well as we are created in the image of God that we've been grafted in to the vine of Israel. And the cross, of course, represents the suffering of God, suffering of the Son of God, as He took our sin upon Him at the cross. But it's also a sign of victory because it is at the cross where we find our redemption. Paul said this about the cross when he wrote to the Galatians. He said, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, what about the symbols of Christmas? Well, they're everywhere. For the culture, the defining symbol of Christmas is a fat guy with a beard and a sleigh with eight tiny reindeer. That's what we think about when we think about when the world thinks about Christmas, they picture secular symbols. But for Christians, the symbol of Christmas is the nativity scene. Maybe you have one or more of those in your house. I know we've got several in different rooms throughout the house, but the one that's the most precious to us is the one that actually came from Bethlehem, and it's made of olive wood. While we were there, we, we got a nativity scene. How can you go to Bethlehem and not come home with a nativity scene made of olive, olive wood? Um, I'm still making payments on that, I think, as a matter of fact. But anyway, and that was, that was a long time ago, we have that one, but, it, but the symbols of the nativity scene speak to us. And there are several that I want us to look at this morning and isolate. I want to talk about the star, the stable, the manger, and the child. And as we see, first of all, we see the star. We think about Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, and then all the way verses 9 and 10 is what we're going to read. After, now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. The star reminds us of several things. Number one, that God always provides a travel guide for seekers. 
people who are being drawn by God are always going to have someone. There's going to be someone that God provides to offer a witness to them so that they understand what the tug of their heart is all about. Now these magi, these wise men, they were probably descendants of the magi of Nebuchadnezzar's day. And they probably heard the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah from Daniel because Daniel was actually one of the magi. So I can imagine Daniel's teaching. You know, Daniel... It's incredible. They had been, when you think about Daniel's faithfulness, I often tell people, I want to be a Daniel, but I'm more like a David. You know, David, David was a man after God's own heart, but David had his flaws. David had his shortcomings. We don't ever see Daniel coming up short in the Scripture. In fact, he'd been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, and when he wrote, he spoke about the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, there hadn't been an evening sacrifice in all the years of captivity in Babylon, and yet Daniel was still observing that in his own mind and his own heart, just as he was praying that got him in trouble and got him thrown into the lion's den, which, of course, God delivered him. But Daniel, I'm sure, was relaying these prophecies, and as relaying these prophecies, the Magi heard, and the Bible says they followed the star all the way to Bethlehem, right to the very spot where they could find Jesus. It didn't just point them in the right direction. It didn't just say, look over here, you might find him, or go over there, he was last seen in this vicinity. No, the star went and stood right over the place where the child lay. And you know, I'm thankful that God puts people like that in our lives, people that become that guiding star that tell us exactly where Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. How about Cornelius? Think about him. He, he had a, a travel guide. I mean, God gave Peter a vision, actually changed Peter's mind and heart about what it meant to be Jewish and that Cornelius, that the, that the Gentiles were going to be grafted in the vine. And then Peter went to become a travel guide for Cornelius. Cornelius and his whole household believed. And so we see examples of this throughout the Scripture. You know, I remember once when I was a group of promise keepers back when promise keepers were the thing and we were down in atlanta for a big event and we decided to go get something to eat before the meeting and of course we went to chick-fil-a because that's that's where christians go when they go to eat particularly if they're a promise keepers event so we're we're lined up and i mean everybody was there i it was incredible how many people were jammed into this little area trying to get food from chick-fil-a well i got up to the counter to give my order and the young man looked at me and he said, where did all these people come from? And I said, well, we're having a Promise Keepers event. He said, Promise Keepers, what's that? And I went, oh boy, how do I, I mean, I got 100 people in line behind me, and he's, how am I going to do this? So I gave him a quick testimony about Promise Keepers and a, and a quick testimony about Jesus and why we were there, and the manager gave him the evil eye, so he had to get back and start filling orders, and I thought, boy, here's a guy that God is speaking to. I wish there was some way that I had a chance to talk to him. So we go to the Promise Keepers event, and then we jump on the MARTA, and we go back to the place where we parked our bus, and we get on the bus, and the tires are flat. And when I say the tires are flat, I mean all of them are flat. Somebody evidently decided that that was going to be a fun thing to do. So how are we going to get from Atlanta back to Spartanburg, back to the Spartanburg area? Well, we called up the bus company and he said, yeah, we'll send out a bus. It'll be two and a half hours at least. Great. 
We're in a parking lot at a MARTA station in Atlanta. So I'm standing there, and we're watching the subway, the MARTA, come by, and we're standing there on the platform, and people are getting off, and at first there's a ton of people getting off, and then as time goes by, fewer and fewer, and then one of the last trains pulled up and stopped, and that boy from Chick-fil-A stepped off the train and was standing there right in front of me. And myself and one of our deacons witnessed to him, and he literally prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his Savior right there on that train platform before we walked into the parking lot. Now, let me tell you about being a travel guide. God is so good that he tore up our bus (laughs) so that we'd be standing there when this guy who was looking for somebody to tell him about Jesus, he put us in the exact place. I mean, if I'd have walked away from the platform, he'd have come out and gotten his car, I never would have seen him. But because I was in the right place at the right time by the hand of God, I was able to be a witness. That's what it means to be a travel guide. It's what it means for us to be a travel guide in the world today. All of us who know the Lord can look back to a time when we were confused, when we were uncertain, and God sent somebody along. He sent somebody into our life. When I got saved back in 1984, I was actually doing radio down in the lower part of the state, and the thing that started me on the journey to realize that I needed to know the Lord was a young preacher who refused to do what other preachers were doing. We had a, we had a rock and roll radio station. So we're playing rock and roll music all day except for 15 minutes in the morning. At 9.45, according to the contract that was signed when the radio station was sold, we had to have morning devotion forever. So, you know, we're going from Bob Seger to morning devotion. 15 minutes. And everybody, these these preachers got to the point, they're like, well, I'm not going over there to do that. I'm just going to mail it in. They would send us cassette tapes. It was 1984. Okay. So they would send us cassette tapes, and we'd put them on, and for 15 minutes, you know, we'd have morning devotion. There was this young Pentecostal preacher, though. He wanted to do it live. That meant I had to sit there and run the board for him, which also meant for a week I had to listen to his witness. And by the end of the week, I was beginning to get under conviction that God was not in my life and that I had not been saved and that I needed the Lord. Now, there was some time went by, some other stuff happened that I finally got saved, but he was a travel guide. He was someone that God put in my path that would not yield to the normal because he believed he had a mission. God was calling him to something special. Maybe you still need a travel guide. Maybe there's people in your life or you need people in your life that can come along that's been walking with the Lord a little bit longer than you, And they can come alongside you and help you with your discipleship. Because I believe God has a travel guide for believers. He places people in our life that help us to grow spiritually. person in my life, Dr. Robert Jackson. Now, some of you may have heard of him. He's kind of a prominent doctor in the upstate. He's now working at Grassy Pond over in Gaffney. He had a practice in Spartanburg for years. But right after I became a believer, he kind of took me and said, Is anybody showing you the scripture is anybody walking alongside of you discipling you and i said well no he said be at my house at six o'clock in the morning i'm like what it's before i was doing the radio show i said i didn't know six o'clock came twice a day he said yeah six o'clock i want you there it said well he lived about 15 miles away from me which means i had to get up at five o'clock and just throw something on and get over there but for a long time twice a week 
he would call me to come and meet with him. And we prayed, and he talked about the Scripture. And he discipled me. He became a travel guide because God put it on his heart, knowing that a young believer was going to need somebody to walk with him. We all need that. And God, that leads us to the last thing of this, of this point, God expects us to be a travel guide for others. Here's the question. The star in the east was bright enough to lead the kings, the magi, right to the place where Jesus was born. What about your star in your life? How bright is it? Is it bright enough to lead someone who needs a travel guide right to the spot where Jesus is? You know, it's easy in our culture today to get discouraged, is it not? I mean, it's easy sometimes to get to the point where we just wonder if, is it all worth it? Is our witness, our testimony, is it really making a difference? Let me just be one of the ones to tell you that our witness and our testimony is based on the power of God. And the power of God never fails. We just need to call on the Lord and He will give us opportunities to become a travel guide, an encourager for others. Now, the second thing, the stable, the next symbol. The stable is special because it's God's reminder of our access to Christ. Luke 2, verse 7 says this, There was no room for them in the end. What a beautiful song this morning to have as I make this point about the symbol of the stable. Mary and Joseph would have, would have traveled slowly because of Mary's condition. So when they got to Bethlehem, it would have been late. And when you get somewhere late, a lot of times they didn't have hotel reservations if all the spaces were taken, there was nothing that could be done. Now, I actually think that the innkeeper has kind of gotten a little bit of a bad rap. I mean, true, he told them there was no room, but he could have just sent them on down the road. But he was creative. He, he came up with this idea of having them stay in a stable. Now, <clears throat> a stable was probably not we have, what we have in our nativity scenes. In fact, if you go to the Holy Land today, you'll see that most people keep their cattle or animals in a cave of some kind. And there's a good reason for that, because it offers shelter from the weather, but it also has a consistent temperature once you get inside the cave. Uh, it sort of gives them some protection from the weather. So it was likely that Jesus was born in a cave. In fact, when you go to Bethlehem now, you can go to the church in the nativity that was built over the site of Jesus' birth, and you go down these steps into this area, which was a cave, and there's a star on the floor that marks the spot where they believe the manger would have sat. And so, what is the significance of the stable? Well, the point is, it was a humble birthplace. It wasn't the Bethlehem Hilton, and it wasn't the birthing center at St. Francis, it wasn't a nice place. You know, Mary would have brought Jesus into the world, perhaps on a hard floor, and there would have been the smell of a barn, the smell of cattle. It would have been a humble place. Why would the Son of God, why would God allow the Savior of the world to come in the world in such a way? Because if He'd have been born in majesty and glory, we would have felt like we could not gain access to Him. But someone who's born in a stable someone who's born of low estate, it opens up the door. It's saying to all of us, Jesus is accessible. He wants us to come to Him. He didn't come from the rich and famous. He didn't come for the powerful of the world. He came for us. And it also demonstrates that Jesus understood our condition. 
He wasn't going to be sheltered from the harsh realities of life. You know, he was, he was in a place where he knew depravity. You know, Jesus was a refugee before he was one year old. You know, it was pretty soon that, that Herod decided he wanted everyone two years old and under to be killed. And Jesus, or God, appeared to Joseph in a dream again and told him to take Jesus and go down to Egypt. You know, I can imagine some kind of conversation between Joseph and Mary where Joseph would go to Mary and say, Mary, I had a dream last night. And Mary says, I'll start packing. Because <laughs> every time Joseph had a dream, they were, they were going to go somewhere. And so they end up going to Egypt. And why? Because they were escaping a murderous king. Jesus was a refugee. He was displaced. You talk about poverty, he knew poverty. You, you talk about living in the street, you're talking about somebody who didn't have any of the world's possessions. Jesus understood the depravity of, of mankind. In fact, Christ is a king who refused the trappings of the kingdom so we could be confident that he understands our weakness and afflictions. Paul put it best. Philippians 2, Paul said, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being bound or found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So can I just, when the enemy whispers in your ear, nobody cares about you and nobody understands, can I just remind you that nobody cares about you like Jesus? And nobody understands more whatever it is that is coming to your life because Jesus experienced it all. I had a woman come up to me one time at Pleasant Grove after a worship service, and she was quite upset because I had said that Jesus could understand every problem that a person could possibly have. And she came to me and she said, my husband is divorcing me and he's a cruel man and he's been unfaithful and Jesus was never married so he doesn't understand unfaithfulness how can you tell me that he could understand and I'm not smart enough to think of this so I know the Lord spoke to me and had me to say to her Jesus bride is the church and there's never been a more unfaithful partner because through the years the church the body of Christ has been up and down up and down we've been unfaithful we've we've gone after other things jesus understands perfectly everything about our lives and he wants to be involved he wants to deliver the stable demonstrates god's determination to reach us god had to come all the way to where we were in the sin of this world in order to get us out of the sin condition that we were in you know think about a person who's in quicksand the more they try to get themselves out, the deeper they sink. The only hope is that somebody comes along who's not in the quicksand, who can reach because they're standing on solid ground and pull them to safety. That's exactly what Jesus came for us. Jesus came as a perfect person. He was born of a virgin so that he's not in the quicksand with us. We're all in the quicksand until Jesus comes along David put it this way, the Lord lifted me up from the miry clay and he put my feet upon the rock. That's what Jesus did for us. But to get us there, he had to come all the way to where we are. 
And the stable demonstrates that. I want to talk about the manger for just a second. Because the manger is about making the ordinary extraordinary. Luke chapter 2 verse 7 says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Do you know, you know, do you, can I explain to you why you know what a manger is? That's not a word that Westerners would ever have in our vocabulary unless Jesus had been laid in one. If God can take a manger and turn it into a household word, turn it into a part of the narrative of the birth of His Son, God can take anybody's life and turn it into a testimony of what He's able to do when we come to Him as Savior. You see, everything that God touches becomes something incredible. It becomes something wonderful. You know, Jesus, when he touched the dead, they lived. When he touched blind eyes, they could see. When God touched Moses' staff, it became an instrument to lead people out of bondage in Egypt. There's so many illustrations that we could see. God takes the ordinary and he makes it extraordinary. God took a fire-breathing Pharisee who was persecuting the church who was out to kill Christians because they were following the way and turned him into the greatest evangelist and church planner that ever lived. Someone who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And you know what else God did? One day he touched my life. He touched me and turned me into an instrument of his grace. If you know this little chorus, sing it with me. He touched me Oh, he touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know he touched me and made me whole. God takes the ordinary. He takes you and me. And once He touches us, we become extraordinary. We become able, capable to do great things for God. In Sunday school this morning, I, I was in a class that was being taught by uh, Tracy, one of our deacons. He did a wonderful job, by the way. And he was talking about the miraculous and how God does things in people's life and how they demonstrate faith. And you know, I think about, it made me tell the story in Sunday school about Jack Phillips now, some of you may know that name, but many of you probably don't. I actually have a picture of him on my desk. And a picture, it's a picture of him decorating a cake. It's because he owns the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Colorado. And he was told that he needed to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding to celebrate that wedding. And Jack Phillips said, you know what? I'll sell anything to anybody that comes in my shop. I don't ask questions about what their sexuality is, or I don't care about their race, but you're asking me to cross a line here. You're asking me to step over and participate in something that God's Word tells me is wrong, and I can't do it. He defied the government of the state of Colorado. He went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Twelve years he fought this battle, and if it hadn't been for ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, it would have bankrupted him. But you know what happened? The Supreme Court agreed that Jack Phillips couldn't be forced to use his creative talent in order to do something that violated his faith. And he became a trailblazer, a defender of Christian liberty. 
You think he could have done that if God had not touched him? God touched him and took an ordinary man and turned him into a faithful servant that was unwilling to bow the knee to Caesar because his first allegiance was to God. I keep his picture on my desk because I want to be reminded every day that God takes the ordinary and turns it into something extraordinary. The fourth thing and the final thing is the child. We look at the child in the Christmas story and the nativity because Jesus makes it all possible. Luke 2.12 And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Seeing the star is not enough. Having a travel guide is not enough. It won't save you unless when you see the Savior, then you come to Him and you humble yourself. This is old, but it speaks, so I'm just going to remind you. you probably heard it before. If information had been what we needed, God would have sent an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was for forgiveness, and so God sent us a Savior. He sent us His Son. And all of the other things that are around the nativity scene, we always know that Jesus is the central part because He's the reason for this season, but He's also the reason that we have the opportunity to spend eternity in heaven. We come to the child for salvation. You know, the Magi didn't lay their gifts before Mary and Joseph. The shepherds didn't hurry to Bethlehem to see what kind of animals would be in the stable. No. They came to see Jesus because they heard the message of the angels. He would save us from our sin. He would be Emmanuel, God with us. The stable's not even enough. It's not enough for us that the Son of God humbled Himself. We have to humble ourselves if we want the Son of God to come into our life and be our Savior. You see, that's one of the hardest things about salvation is admitting that we need a Savior. But every one of us, no matter what kind of life we've lived, and I know people that have lived exemplary lives, that have lived a life of, of giving to others, philanthropy, and they don't know Jesus as Savior. But can I say that if they don't come to know Jesus before they leave this life, no good that they have done will get them into heaven. Because the only call, the only hope that we have is that we humble ourselves, confess our sin, and invite the child Jesus into our heart and it's also not enough that we see the manger because we can't be made extraordinary we can't be transformed from the ordinary to the extraordinary we can't be used by him until he lives in us you're going to see a lot of nativity scenes before the Christmas season ends you might even pass way one on your way to to lunch or on your way home let me encourage you when you see it see the stable and remember that Jesus had to come all the way to where we are in order to be a savior for us when you see the star think about the fact remember the person that shared Jesus with you that was the witness maybe it was your mother father pastor Somebody in your life shared a witness and a testimony and led you to know Jesus as your Savior. Remember that person. 
Remember that we have a responsibility to be that person for those in this world who are lost. When you look at the manger and you think about your situation in life, don't be discouraged. Remember that everything God touches, He turns into something extraordinary. And God wants to do that with your life. But more than anything else, please, when you see the child, if you don't know Him as Savior, if you've never invited Him into your life, then you're not going to understand the rest of the nativity scene and its magnificence until Jesus is in your heart. He came from heaven for you. He came and died on a cross for you, for everyone who would believe, for everyone who would confess their sins and invite Him into their heart. We're going to have an invitation this morning, and you'll have an opportunity to come forward. If you want to come to this altar to pray this morning, I want to encourage you to do that. Maybe there's a a burden on your heart. Maybe you need somebody to pray with you. Grab somebody that you know, that you know would pray with you and bring them up and let them pray with you this morning. Maybe God is speaking to you about any part of this message. You feel like the Christmas season is passing you by because you don't feel like you've been touched by God. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I would encourage you today to understand He knows your station in life. He understands. He came that you might know Him and know eternal life. If you don't know Him this morning, come and let me tell you how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus, how He can touch you and make you whole in an instant. Let's stand together as we sing. Mm -hmm.